Do you believe in miracles? I mean, do you believe in honest-to-goodness, old-fashioned acts of God? Now, most of us would probably, like I heard some of you say, yeah, I believe in miracles. And if I were to ask you how many miracles you've ever seen, you'd probably say, I don't know. In fact, I think all of life is a miracle. Or you might say, well, I don't know, a miracle would be Washita Baptist beating Texas in football. That would be a miracle. But, you know, both of those things are examples of the English word miracle, but that's not exactly what I mean when I ask you the question, do you believe in miracles? I'm not asking or thinking about the surprising events of life or these long-shot victories. Some of you may remember when the United States beat Russia in the Olympics in hockey. The announcer says, do you believe in miracles? I'm not talking about something like that. By miracle, I mean those contrary to human possibility events that have absolutely no natural explanation. Now, some of you might say, well, oh, uh, that kind of miracle. Uh, Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, I believe in those. But maybe now you're not quite so certain whether you believe in miracles. Because by definition, that kind of miracle doesn't happen much. In fact, those kinds of things happen pretty rarely. And when they do happen, they are really hard to believe, partly because they don't happen very often, partly because we really have no way to explain them. I mean, even in the Bible, those kind of miracles, the ones that go against nature, uh, they were not daily occurrences. The resurrection of Jesus is that kind of miracle. Think about it. The resurrection of Jesus coming back from the dead, it is totally unexplainable by any human or natural means. That may be why we don't talk about it very much. I mean, we're not sure how it happened. I mean, the crucifixion, we understand. The resurrection, that's another matter. If you want proof, we have lots of people wear silver crosses around their neck. When was the last time you saw someone with a silver empty tomb hanging around their neck? We're pretty good with the crucifixion. Not so hot sometimes with the resurrection. So I'm going to ask you again, do you believe in miracles? I mean, especially this, do you believe in the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Now, in case, uh, if you think you've got to answer yes or nod your head in agreement because you're sitting in church, I want you to all kind of put your mind at ease. If you answer no... Or if your answer would be, I'm not really so sure, uh, I will tell you that you're in pretty good company. Because there are lots of people who aren't really sure that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I don't know if you're familiar with a group called the Jesus Seminar. I went and listened to the head of it. He's the head of the theology department at DePaul University, good Catholic university in Chicago. And he feels that Jesus just died on the cross and his body, when it rotted, fell off and dogs ate it. 
I mean, the head of a theology department doesn't buy into the fact that Jesus came back from the dead. But you know something? There were a lot of people on that first Easter Sunday that weren't so sure either. Uh, You want names? How about uh, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Simon the Zealot, and a man whose name has become synonymous with doubt, Thomas. Or as we call him, Doubting Thomas. It's kind of interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Thomas. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know what he did before he was a disciple. But we have a a little bit of a clue about his family. When you read about Thomas, he's usually introduced, as I read about him tonight, Thomas, who is called Didymus. Now, that doesn't mean much to us today, but the original readers recognized exactly what was going on. The name Thomas comes from the Aramaic, and it means twin. Didymus is the Greek word for twin. Twin called twin. That's what it translates out. Obviously, uh, Thomas had a twin brother, or a twin sister, and he was called twin for some reason. That was his nickname. And in the early church, there's quite a bit of extra kind of uh, speculation as to who was Thomas's twin brother or who was Thomas's twin sister. Uh, most people have suggested that Matthew was his twin brother. I don't know why that is. Uh, you can take that for whatever it's worth, which is not much. But it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that Thomas is remembered solely in what I would call negative light. Because if you read a little bit more and you stop and think about it, there's more to this man. Now, where does Thomas first step into the biblical picture? You find him in John 11. There's an interesting story that most of you know. Lazarus, one of the best friends of Jesus, has died in Bethany. Bethany is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. But Jesus and his disciples are off in Jericho, which is a fair distance away down by the Jordan River. That's where they get the word that Lazarus is sick and dead. Well, when he finds out Lazarus is sick, you know, remember Jesus said, oh, let's hang around here for a while. The disciples probably thought he's a little bit nuts for doing that. But when Jesus decides to go to Bethany, the disciples as a group remind him that the last time he went into Judea, the leaders tried to stone him to death. They tried to tell him, this is going to be suicidal, Jesus, for you to go back to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, we got to go anyway. It's at that point that Thomas pops up into the word of God. Thomas turns around and evidently says to the rest of the disciples from John 11:16, let us go also that we might die with him. I don't know about you, but that statement uh, reveals enormous courage. I mean, Thomas agreed the Jewish leaders were probably going to kill Jesus if he went back to Jerusalem, and we know that in the end that's exactly what happened. But what can you say about a man who, in effect, says, look, if they kill him, they're going to have to kill us too. I mean, if they're going to kill Jesus, they're going to have to kill me too. I think it takes a real man to step up to the plate and say something like that. Now, there, there's love there. 
there's loyalty there, there's despair there, there's sacrifice, there's total commitment. It, it, it may just be that Thomas understood better than the rest of the disciples what was about to happen. But, and that brave statement, if you think about it, may actually explain some of his later doubts. Now, Thomas pops up one more time in the Bible before the crucifixion. It's late on a Thursday night. It's the night we call, what, Monday, Thursday. Jesus had just instituted Holy Communion. He'd washed the disciples' feet, and he had given them this little lecture about how they were to love one another. And about this time, the Judas leaves the room to do his dirty work, and the rest of the disciples are kind of gathering around Jesus, uh, knowing that the end was maybe not far away. And to them, this loyal group of men who are with him, these are the words of Jesus from John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place, the way to the place I am going. You probably heard that before at a funeral service somewhere. Now, Thomas is listening to these words. But all of this talk about coming and going seems to be a little bit too much for him. It kind of seems kind of vague and mysterious. In a, in a moment of great honesty, do you remember what... Thomas blurts out. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? I think those are the words of a totally honest man. I mean, the rest of the disciples, I'm sure, were just as mixed up. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. But only Thomas dared to speak up. Do you know people like that? If they don't understand something, they don't let it pass. They keep asking. They keep probing until they can make sense out of it. That's Thomas. And that's another clue to his personality. Thomas was kind of an independent thinker, not easily stampeded. Uh, he would not make a confession of faith until he, was, he, until he deeply believed it. He, it's kind of like, okay, you other guys can make whatever kind of glib, easy faith statements you want. But I'm going to think about this. I want to process this. Thomas had a faith that was won through the agony of personal struggle. So this picture we have of Thomas on the eve of the crucifixion is this. He was a brave man. He was intensely loyal. He was deeply committed to Jesus. If needs be, he was willing to go with Jesus and lay down his life that same night. And he's completely honest about his doubts. He's honest about his confusion. He's honest about his fears. And he won't be satisfied with second-hand answers. And now you've got him right on the edge of the stage for the crisis of his life. Now, you and I sometimes forget what it was like on that first Easter that's because most of us have been raised with Sunday school stories, the highlights. And we don't take time to find out what happens and connects these stories together. And so I think it's worth asking, if you had been there on that first Easter Sunday morning, you, 
sandals, long robe, John, picture yourself doing that, kind of like when you get up in the morning. Uh, but it's worth asking, if you had been there, would you have believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, or would you have doubted? Or maybe to put the question slightly different, what would it take to convince you that somebody you loved had come back to life after being dead for three days? What if you had been there with that person and actually saw them die? What if you had been there and seen them poke a spear through his side? What would you think if you'd actually seen them being put in the tomb? What would it take to convince you that this person was now alive again? You know, rising from the dead is not all that common. As far as I know, it's not happened in the last 2,000 years. I mean, this is not something that happens like every weekend in Texarkana. If we had been there, if you had been there in Jerusalem with Matthew and James and John, would you have believed those strange rumors that Jesus had risen from the dead? Now, to answer that question, I think you need to remember how those people who knew Jesus best actually reacted to the news of his resurrection. Now, quite simply, they were not expecting Jesus to come back from the dead. Now, it's true that Jesus had three different passion predictions. He, three different times he told them, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. He even said, I'm going to die in three days and I'm going to come back. I mean, Peter said, no, Jesus, stop talking about that foolishness. But I think for his followers, coming back from the dead was about the furthest thing from their mind. I mean, forget all of his predictions, forget all of his brave talk. I think mentally they had bailed out on him. I mean, who really expected a resurrection? I can tell you who didn't. It was the disciples. I can tell you who did expect the resurrection. You know who did expect the resurrection? The Jewish leaders. They were the ones who convinced the Romans to do what? Seal the tomb and post the guard. They'd heard Jesus and they wondered whether something weird might be happening. I mean, Jesus' enemies feared something might happen. His friends? Not so much. In fact, Mark 16, we often hear this on Easter Sunday, it says that the women came to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning to do what? To welcome Jesus back to life? Good to see you, Jesus, again. No, they went to do what? Anoint the body of Jesus. They were going to finish the embalming process. I mean, in the confusion of trying to get his body off the cross and into that tomb before sundown on Friday, they'd put some spices on the body of Jesus. But that 60 to 80 to 100 pounds of anointing and stuff that they had to pack around that body... They had to wait until Sunday morning when the Sabbath was over to come and do that. They came to finish embalming Jesus and getting him ready to be in that grave forever. What did they find when they got there? Nothing. Well, they found the stone was rolled away. They found an empty tomb. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all agreed. The women didn't have the foggiest idea what had happened. Why? Because they weren't looking for a resurrection. 
Mark says that even after an angel explained it to them, they fled, quote, trembling and afraid. John says that even Mary thought somebody had stolen the body. Luke adds that when the women came and told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, listen to this, Luke 24, 11, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Well, of course, it is nonsense. I mean, nobody comes back from the dead when they've been dead for three days. You don't come back from the dead after being scourged, not after hanging on a cross for six hours, not after having a sword shoved through your side, not after being covered with a hundred pounds of spices and wrapped in burial cloth, not after being sealed in a tomb. And so it is that Mark says, when they heard Jesus was alive, they did not believe it. I mean, who could blame them? I'm going to ask the question again. If you had been there, would you have? And don't be sitting there going, well, of course. I mean, get that smug Lutheran look off your face. You wouldn't have bought into that any more than the Jews did, the disciples. Now, the funny thing is, John tells us that Thomas was not present on that Sunday night when Jesus suddenly, ta-da, shows up. The Bible doesn't say why he wasn't there. But I think I know. Now, I'm going to tell you, this didn't fall off of Mount Sinai. I'm just going to tell you what I think. So just understand this what I think. And I think, I think this way because there are generally two different ways that people respond to sorrow and tragedy. Some people seek solace in the company of family and friends. They lose a loved one. They like to be with people. Some people want to have other people around them to talk it out. Other people prefer to be alone with their thoughts. And I have a feeling that Thomas was somebody like that, who just needed to step away from everything and sort it all out. Now, if it's true that Thomas realized more than the others what was going to happen in Jerusalem, then it may also be true that he was most deeply hurt by all of this. I mean, he was not with the disciples because his heart had been crushed. I mean, everything he had, he'd given to Jesus. And now Jesus was dead. I mean, he still loves, he still cares, he still wants to believe, but his heart is broken. He's not a bad man. His doubt is not sinful. I mean, deep inside, I think Thomas really wants to believe. So I'm saying don't put him down too hard. Because every last single one of us, including myself, have always have been in that very same place. Now, if you want to call Thomas a doubter, okay, but do not make him out to be an unbeliever. Neither is Thomas a skeptic, in spite of the fact that the last hymn is going to call him a skeptic. Neither is he a rationalist, even though the last hymn is going to refer to his rational thoughts. I think his doubts come from his devotion to Christ. I mean, there's no doubt like the doubt of a broken heart. I mean, it's one thing to doubt the virgin birth in a classroom setting. It's something else to 
again, to lose someone you love and wonder if there's still a God in heaven. You see, there are two kinds of doubters. Two kinds of doubters in the realm of spiritual truth. And quite honestly, you got them in every church. Every church I've ever been a part of, you've got these two kinds of doubters. There are some of these kind of what I'd call hard-boiled rationalists who say, I don't believe it. There's nothing that will make me believe it. And these people enjoy their doubt. They talk about their doubt. They laugh about their doubt. But they get really, really angry if you ever try to reason with them. People like that. You all know them. Man like that, woman like that, they're not looking for answers. They're looking for an argument. Uh, they count the difficulties, seize up all of the objections, look for loopholes, and guess what? The Pharisees in the Bible fall into that category. When they ask Jesus for a sign, Jesus says, No, I'm not going to give you a sign, you evil and adulterous generation. He knew who they were. But you know something? There's another kind of doubter. The person who says, I'm having a hard time with this. I don't believe, but I'm willing to believe if I could just see it for myself. That's Thomas. Thomas fits here. I don't think he's an unbelieving skeptic. Rather, he is a wounded believer. Now remember, Thomas did not doubt the miraculous in general. After all, he'd seen most of Jesus' gigantic miracles. I mean, I'm sure he was there for the feeding of the 5,000, the 2,000. He was there to see blind people have their sight restored, deaf people their hearing restored, lepers to be cleansed, demons to be cast. But this one, coming back from the dead, was just too big to take somebody else's word for it. And who could blame him? He'd seen the rest, but he wasn't going to take somebody else's word for this. Before Thomas would believe, he had to personally see Jesus. And he had to be sure it was Jesus, not some dream or vision. He had to be sure that this was the same Jesus that he saw die. I think that's why he didn't take the word of the disciples. I mean, not on something like this. It's not that he was unwilling to believe. He was just unable at this point. I mean, some people are satisfied with the testimony of others. Some are not. I mean, I have people tell me a lot of interesting things sometimes, and I kind of go, eh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I have to see it before I buy into it. What do they say going about people from Missouri? Show me. Yeah, stubborn old Missouri mules. Got to show them before they believe. Now, did Thomas doubt the truthfulness of the other disciples? No, I kind of think he believed them. But that wasn't enough because there are a lot of people, quite honestly, who see things. I mean, maybe Thomas had in the back of his mind, they just thought they saw it, they saw it. They saw a ghost. And he couldn't live with that secondhand faith. He had to see for himself. And he said, unless I can, I can touch his wounds, I'm not going to believe. And there's much more, that's more, much more than doubt. I mean, I think there's love and sorrow and pain and a grain of hope. I mean, Thomas stands... For all of time is the one man that most desperately wanted to believe if only he could be sure. And I'd ask you, can you blame him for that? Would you have been any different? 
Now, after all of these years, I'm going to suggest to you that Thomas has gotten a bad rap. Now, I wouldn't go the other way and say, Judas has got a bad rap. <laughs> Judas was wrong. I think Thomas, though, maybe got a bad rap here. What, what do we always call him? Doubting Thomas. You know, we tend to look down on him. But there's one person that didn't look down on him. It was called, his name was Jesus. Eight days after Jesus appeared to the disciples, he came back again, second time. This time, Thomas was there. Jesus speaks to him as one whose faith is weak, not to one who has an evil, wicked heart. What did he say to Thomas? John 20, verse 27. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out. Put them in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus knew Thomas's doubts. He knew what was going on inside of Thomas's heart. And he came just so Thomas could be sure. I don't think Jesus put him down either. He just said, go ahead. All you who wonder if it's true, see for yourself. Stop doubting and believe it's really me. It's not in the Bible, but I have a feeling that the rest of the disciples all came up and felt him afterwards. I don't know, just kind of a strange thought. They could check it out for themselves, too. In fact, here's the truth. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Now, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the miracle that we celebrate on Easter? If your answer is no, or if your answer is, I'm not sure, well, you're welcome. It's okay to be an honest doubter. If you came that way and you want to leave that way, that's okay. But Jesus says, when you're ready, I'll be here waiting to supply you all the proof you need. See, all that God really asks, I think, is that men be consistent with themselves. He asks that you give this story the same treatment that you would give to any other story that you ever hear. I mean, sift through the evidence. Judge the record and come to a conclusion. I mean, it's all right to doubt. But don't let your doubts keep you away from the open tomb. You've got to come to that open, empty tomb and see for yourself. It, it, when Thomas saw Jesus, I mean, he fell at his feet. He knew who it was. And he said, my Lord and my God. You know, there are two great testimonies in all of Scripture that the disciples gave. One of them, Jesus said to the disciples one day, uh, who are, you know, when you're walking around, who, are people, who do people say that I am? And they go, oh, some people say you're Moses or Elijah, come back from the grave and blah, 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 blah. And he says, well, okay, that's what other people say. What do you say? And remember, Peter says, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, that's one powerful statement of faith. The only other disciple that comes up with one is Thomas, who says, my Lord and my God. It's one of the greatest testimonies given by any dis disciple, and it's the climax, really, of John's gospel. 
And it comes from the man who had the strongest doubts of all of the apostles. I, I just think it's a wonderful truth that the greatest doubters often become the strongest believers. And the honest doubts, once resolved, become the bedrock of an unshakable faith. I think about people that I have met who have been atheists. Lee Strobel comes to mind. Uh, A former reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, prize-winning columnist who wrote the book The Case for Christ. What a turnaround. And those doubts that he had became bedrock for his belief today. Now, it's been said that no truth is so strongly believed as that which you once doubted. In the history of the Christian church, the greatest doubters have often become the strongest believers. I mean, that's why the story of Thomas is here. So honest doubters can be encouraged to bring honest doubts to the empty tomb. Thomas did, and his doubts were washed away by Jesus, Jesus who was alive from the dead. i got to tell you, we don't know much more about Thomas other than that at least history says that he made it all the way to what we know today as India and brought the first gospel witnesses to that country and died when he was speared to death preaching the gospel. One other thing. Nobody can remain neutral forever. I mean, you can bring your doubts to the empty tube, that's for sure. But sooner or later, you got to make a choice. You cannot, you know, ride on the fence forever. Either you believe it or you don't. The Bible says today would be a good day for you to make a choice. Today could be the day of your salvation. I mean, any day is a wonderful day uh, to make that choice. It's a great day to stop doubting and start believing. I mean, you know that Jesus died. There's no doubt about that. You know that he died for you. You know he rose from the, from the dead. The question God asks all of us is this. What have you done with my son? Jesus said, stop doubting and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the deepest questions of life are answered with the simplicity of an empty tomb. Lead us into the garden of the resurrection where we may meet our Lord. And may we never live as if Jesus were dead. May those who doubt now believe and find life through his name. We pray this in the name of Jesus who died and rose again and who lives forevermore. Amen.